Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, I'll be talking about the romantic comedy Bachelor Mother with film historian and critic Raquel Stetcher. She's a writer for Turner Classic Movies and DVD Netflix, and has also contributed articles to The Library of Congress, The Dark Pages, Indicator, and more. In 2007, she started the classic film blog Out of the Past, and in 2018 branched out with Cal Movies, a website devoted to new releases. She's a certified critic for Rotten Tomatoes and Cherry Picks, and is a member of the Online Association of Female Film Critics. As press, Raquel has covered a variety of film festivals, including the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival, as well as Sundance, TIFF, and South by Southwest. She's a frequent guest on movie podcasts, hosts her own YouTube channel, and in her free time tweets about all things film on her Twitter account, at Raquel Stetcher. And I will link everything in the description of this episode so you can follow Raquel. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Raquel. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk. So before you dive into Bachelor Mother, I want my listeners to get to know you. So when did you first discover classical Hollywood and what drew you to that period of of film? So I've always really loved literature and film. And when I was an English major in college, I decided to take an elective. So I took a course, like a film course. And I watched all of these great classic movies like Out of the Past and Citizen Kane and Singing in the Rain. And I was just mesmerized by these movies. So I just after that course had ended, I continued my education, watching a lot of Turner classic movies, buying movies, renting movies. And it got to the point around 2007 where I just had so much to say about classic movies that I needed an outlet. So I started a blog, which I called Out of the Past, and it was a great avenue for me just to talk about classic movies. And that was in 2007, and I'm still talking about classic movies. I write for um, I write for TCM now, which is really awesome. Um, I've written for DVD Netflix, the Library of Congress, any opportunity I can to kind of spread the message about classic movies has been wonderful. And also, it's just been really comforting for me because I love the history, I love the research, and I love exploring different times and and different um, and different eras. And seeing things from the past has always been such a joy for me. I love that, and you get—I agree—you get to explore a whole other world, and you you do so learn about so many aspects beyond film when you dive into classical Hollywood. I think it's. It's such a unique genre, I guess, if you will, of, of film. It's true. You get to experience a little of, you know, older, like, cultures, how um, um, different sayings, things that we don't say now, like, and how, and <laughs> <laughs> banana, that's banana oil. Like, all these different sayings that you hear from, like, the old comedies that were just regular 
jargon back in the day. And it's kind of, it's really charming tapping into things like that. And I even like, I even treat classic movies as sometimes as a, like a, like a scavenger hunt. I just want to see what the old technologies were, what they had in the background. Um, I love those movies with the fancy art deco apartments and seeing what kind of like little statues or furniture they had. Those little elements I love because it just kind of brings that history to life. Absolutely. It's their perfect time capsules of that period. Now, when I was coming up with a list of films for this season, I told you this off mic, um, but I settled on Bachelor Mother and you were my first thought. And I said, I have to invite Raquel on the pod. And as I said to you just a few minutes ago, you're probably the number one Bachelor Mother fan that I know. So do you remember the first time you watched it and what your initial impressions were and, you know, what made you fall in love with the film from the beginning? So, yes, I remember. I don't remember the exact year. I think it might have been 04 or 05. And Turner Classic Movies had a lineup and it was all Bachelor movies. So it was Bachelor Mother, Bachelor Father, Bachelor in Paradise. I think it was like six different movies. So in back in those days, I used to record TCM movies on my VCR. So I filled up an entire VHS tape of just that programming block. And the very first movie they showed was Bachelor Mother. And I was so enchanted with that movie. Um, it's, it was just, it, it hit a lot of elements that I like. I like romantic comedies, screwball mm-hmm. comedies. I like workplace comedies. So it's got that element. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the the themes of like new beginnings, the holiday theme, it's Christmas, it's New Year's, it's a little glamorous, but it also like explores, um, you know, uh, class, like, um, like social clash, you know, between like the wealthy and, you know, the working class, it had so much to give. And it was also rewatchable, I could just watch it over and over again. So it quickly became my favorite movie, I treasured that VHS tape played it over and over again. I watched all the movies, but I particularly watched that first block on that VHS to death. And then I lost the VHS. Oh, no. (laughs) And I couldn't find it. And I panicked. Because like, and I couldn't find it for years. So I would take other VHS tapes, and whenever TCM showed it around Christmas time, I would record it. And I ended up having a few recordings. And then I think it was in 2010, Warner Archive released it on DVD, and I was like, oh my goodness, I need to buy this. And then I was like, oh, I need to also buy a second copy and a third copy just in case I lose the <laughs> first one. There was something very special about this movie, and I was almost traumatized by losing that VHS recording I first had that I started almost hoarding recordings and copies for Mm -hmm. myself. And then it got to a point where, I mean, I watched it every single year, especially around Christmas and New Year's. And I started um, giving away copies of the DVD to friends as just like a, almost like a benevolent thing. I thought, hey, here's a friend. They might not have seen Bachelor Mother or they might not own it. Let me just send it to them randomly. So over the years, I've sent like 20 something copies out. I love that. Sometimes with a little note um, on them. And it's just been a very comforting movie uh, for me. And I grew up without holidays. So I didn't I didn't really understand like holidays like Christmas or Easter. But New Year's, I 
I came to understand with this movie and it's got that great New Year's sequence mm -hmm. and it's part of the reason why I celebrate New Year's every year. I think it's just so glamorous in the movie and I just kind of want to relive that a little bit. I love that and that's honestly I think my favorite scene in the film and I think it's such yep. a good example of Polly and David's chemistry. It's just yes. an infinitely charming sequence. And it's interesting because throughout the beginning of the movie, their chemistry is like so-so, mm -hmm. but it's in the New Year's sequences where you realize, wow, they're really into each other and yeah. there's a, a romance blossoming, yeah. which I think is quite special. And I love that it's a long sequence. You really get to like get to really enjoy. There's like the makeover, there's yeah. the party, there's the, um, you know, Times Square with the ball dropping scene. I mean, there's so much to enjoy. There is. And I think one of my favorite parts is when they're they're separated in the crowd and they're both like yes. jumping up to like catch a glimpse of where the other one is. <laughs> and it just reminds me of like that time when you're ever in like a the beginning of a romance and you're like so giddy and like obsessed mm -hmm. with your partner. You're just like so in love. And I think the film just like per perfectly encapsulates like that feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I also think that that scene is really important because the whole movie deals with social class. Like David mm -hmm. Niven's character is this basically wealthy Nepo baby <laughs> <laughs> who has this job at this um, fancy department store because his dad put Anne's son on the building. <laughs> um, and she's, you know, a shop girl. She's working class. She's got no family. She's she really needs this job to survive. Mm -hmm. So they come from different worlds yeah. and it's clear when they're in each other's spaces that they're uncomfortable. But in this crowd, it's like the great equalizer because yeah. you can't tell who's who. It's just this big mass. Everyone's enjoying themselves. No one's upper class or lower class. You're all yeah. just in a big group enjoying New Year's and ringing in the New Year's together, which I think is is quite special. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that the sort of like communal the camaraderie aspect of it it's it's just yeah it's beautiful so I know the film had an interesting production history and it was remake of an Austrian Hungarian film called Little Mother yes um, I think Klein Muti <laughs> yes I would butcher that pronunciation um can you talk a little bit about how this version came about and sort of what what it took to bring it to the screen for American audiences so I've seen the original there's a YouTube copy you know, floating around on there, out there. It's got Russian subtitles, I believe, but it's in German and it's off, okay. like you said, it's Austro-Hungarian. Um, so I watched it, but I can't, like even with the auto-translate <laughs> oh, um, into English, so yeah. I, I can only pick up some words and use context clues, but the original story is about a young woman at a boarding school and it's kind of the same scenario she goes out on an errand and she discovers this baby on the doorstep of a foundling home and she takes she takes it and everyone thinks the baby is hers mm. and in the original movie um she falls in love with a banker i believe um mm. so it doesn't have the same like workplace element that the remake does but i believe that was made as part of a universal um their universal um outlet in europe okay so it was so universal owned the rights and somehow rko 
got the rights to it. And I mean, the original has um, some interesting players that we know now, like Henry Coster um, directed it. And he also was known for like Harvey, the Bishop's wife. It was produced by Joe Pasternak. Really? Um, And this was all, this was before they had come over to Hollywood. I mean, this was from 1935. So it's like pre-World War II, pre like all the emigre directors traveling to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joe Pasternak, which is kind of funny, he also produced the other remake, Bundle of Joy, in 1956. So he's got wow. a very strong connection to this. Um, so RKO had um, taken this on, and they it, it was basically modeled for Ginger Rogers, because mm-hmm. Ginger Rogers was kind of needing a break from her Fred Astaire movies, and she kind of wanted something on her own. And this was a great vehicle for her, a romantic comedy. Um, it also gave her an opportunity to dance. They added a dancing element to it where she's in a dance competition. Yes. Um, so they added that and they kept true to the original story, but they added the workplace element where the characters are in a department store, mm-hmm. which makes sense for the time because the department store was a place of luxury that was accessible to a lot of people yeah. kind of like the automat too it was a fancy place that pretty much anyone could enter and mm-hmm. purchase things at so um it tapped into that and um so and and i believe the 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 writer for this they who had adapted it was norman krasna and um he, he, it's clear that the elements of the story were played up to really showcase Ginger Rogers' mm-hmm. comedic skills. She's given lots of great one-liners. Yeah. Um, she's giving her dancing sequence. She's given a makeover, costumes by Irene, even though she's a working girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just really, it's really funny. And the the publicity, I don't know if you've looked into the publicity stunts that they no, I organized for the make for the for the release of this movie are wild. Oh, really? So I'm from Boston and they had done this whole campaign at the RKO Theater, mm-hmm. um, which is now a Chinatown um tea stop. <laughs> it no longer exists, but they had like taken over that block. They had hired a local Ginger Rogers lookalike oh my to be the <laughs> spokesperson for the movie. There were other campaigns, like they had um, a whisper campaign with a piglet, and they had dressed as a baby. And the first <laughs> one to ask for it won the pig. Oh my god! And the worst one was a Ginger Rogers measurement competition where women could come in and be measured, and it, the, the whoever was closest to Ginger Rogers actual measurements won something wow <laughs> which you could not do that today. no no that does not age well that's a testament so it, though to her like star power though absolutely i mean ginger rogers was on top of her game this came out around the same time as the wizard of oz and still did really well at the box office and this came out like this is kind of a christmas new year's movie it's got that you know winter element um, even though it's not very wintry, there's like a couple winter scenes, mm-hmm. uh, but it was released in the middle of July, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> the Christmas in July, that's 
<laughs> so it had some things going against it the fact that it's competing with something like the wizard of oz and that it's in the middle of july and it's yeah. also like the summer slump for yeah. the movie industry at the time um before the big summer blockbusters were a thing um and it still did really well because it's just such a charming movie it is i mean 1939 was as if any classical hollywood fan knows it was a huge year for movies you have so many yes. titles and it's interesting that this this comedy is one of the ones that endures. And I think it is definitely goes to what you're saying, the the charm of it. It gives you that like warm feeling, even though there are definite elements of, you know, class commentary woven throughout, yes. it is still a an infinitely charming film. And I think a lot of that is down to Ginger Rogers. And how would you describe her star persona and like her, her style of comedy? I think she's, She's kind of like the every woman. She mm -hmm. doesn't, she seems very approachable. Like she's like the, the type of woman who, you know, she's very talented as a dancer and she looks very glamorous all dressed up. But she also seems like a woman who might just live down the street from you, who you might see on a regular basis. She just seemed very approachable, yeah. which um, is in contrast to maybe a star like Greta Garbo, who seemed like unattainable and distant, which was part of the appeal. But for her, she's kind of almost like the all-American girl. Um mm -hmm. And she did really well with, um, you know, the dancing musicals with Fred Astaire, but also screwball comedies and then more serious roles. Like she's great in Kitty Foyle, I'll Be Seeing yeah. You. So she had some range, but I think her star power was really just her appeal mm -hmm. as kind of like the all-American um, woman. Yeah. So, and in, in this one, she's get, in this um, Bachelor Mother, she's given so many wonderful one-liners she has all these really great reactions yes and it really highlights that kind of subtleness of her comedy style yeah. where it's more reactiveness rather than punchlines that kind of thing or um gags but her reactions her her um back and forth with David Niven in this movie they just play off each other so beautifully Oh, it's perfect. They're like so in tandem. I think one of my favorite parts of the film, and I think the showcases that uh, expressiveness that you talk about is right at the beginning where Polly goes into David's office for the first time and the um, orf head of the orphanage is there and they talk about how she's going to get the, the Christmas present and it keeps cutting back to her and she's just like this face like, what are they talking about? She's just so confused and like, uh, I think my favorite line is David Niven says, I wish you and yours and he kind of gives like a wink wink nudge nudge, uh, a very <laughs> Merry Christmas and it's just the cutting between her and and them, it just builds this wonderful comedic tension. And even the way she says, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> it's like even little things like that are just so charming. Yeah. And she's also great exchanges with Frank, Frank Elbertson. I love when the scene where he sees the baby for the first time and she's trying to cover it up. It's, oh, it's the neighbor's baby. It's the, <laughs> and the baby crawls from around the corner of the sofa. And he's like, okay, where is this from? And she's like, I got it for Christmas. And he responds, this Christmas or last Christmas? It's super <laughs> dumb question, but it plays off so beautifully um, that, oh my goodness, those exchanges I think are part of the charm of the movie. And 
it's with multiple characters, the exchanges with Charles Coburn, even like the cute little scenes with the baby um, are just so wonderful too. That's, I love it. And this film is so much about like womanhood and it plays with like societal expectations about, you know, a woman's identity, their virtue. And you see that trope often in, you know, melodrama with films like mm-hmm. Mildred Pierce or I guess Stella Dallas. And they're often end very tragically. Uh, right. But here it's done in a much more like sophisticated sort of like tongue in cheek fashion. And I guess my question would be like, what kind of mother does the film position Polly to be? And what sort of ideas does it put forth about her, her changing identity? What I think is interesting about this movie that I don't hear a lot of people talk about is the fact that she is in the world of bachelor mother. She's an unwed single mother. Mm-hmm. No one believes that she's not the mother of this child. She can't convince her landlady, her her two bosses, the or the people at the orphanage. No one, even Frank Albertson's character Freddie, does not believe that this is not her baby. So, in the world of Bachelor Mother, she is a single unwed mother. We're mm-hmm. in on the joke, and Ginger Rogers' character is in on what's happening. Yeah, but no one else is, and this is kind of a subtle way of of doing a story about an unwed mother Mm -hmm. in a time where you have the Hays Code, which is very strict about how things are presented. And also there is all this threat of being, you know, canceled by the Catholic Legion of Decency or whatever the term is. But um, there's there's a lot of consciousness about morality. And I like how it plays with that. She's not really the mother of this child, but they can explore that same... Um, theme by um, making it seem like she is an unwed mother in her world which I think is interesting and I I kind of like how her maternal instincts are portrayed in this movie because it's not really oh she is just in love with this baby her maternal instincts are coming out it's more so that she's an orphan herself Mm -hmm. Um, early on in the movie she is working in the toy department of this um, beautiful department store. And she gets the pink slip that after Christmas, she's no longer needed. And her coworker asks her, you know, can't you just go back home? Mm -hmm. Don't you have anyone in New York city? And she says, I have no one. Mm -hmm. And she finds this baby on a, on a doorstep. And it all like the baby, she doesn't know if it's a boy or girl yet. Um, The baby has no one either. Yeah. So they're both orphans and it's more like she is connecting to someone else who's also alone in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's where their bond comes. And in the bait and also they portray it as the baby also senses like, this is my person yeah. because he won't cry when he's in her arms. <laughs> so I think that's an interesting way of uh, portraying them. The, the maternal story is having them both kind of be orphans. Definitely. And I think you can really see like the evolution of her character accepting this baby into her life. You know, there's the scene where she and David are in the park and they meet another couple with a baby around the same age. And it almost becomes <laughs> like a competition of like, like a one-upmanship. Exactly. And there's like this defensiveness that she displays that, you know, this is my baby. But then also there are other scenes. I, I remember one line, she says something to the effect she's talking to David. I think it's when Charles Coburn's character, he threatens to get custody of the baby. Yes. And I think she says something to the effect of like, you become attached to something if you're around it long enough. So it's like 
yes. she's clearly like grappling with this new life that's been like thrust upon her. Yeah, and I mean, at the the very beginning, she's trying to give the baby back. Like she's <laughs> trying to give the baby to the orphanage. Yeah, she's trying. She there's that whole sequence where she brings it to um, David Merlin's house, and she leaves <laughs> the baby with the butler, and she goes off dancing with Freddie. And um, it's very clear that she she can't be in this situation. She just lost her job. She just got it back. Mm-hmm. She really needs it. She has nobody. She can't also take care of a child, but that connection develops over time. And you see those sweet moments where, um, you know, the landlady steps in to help and gives her some things and, okay, now she has a little bit of support. She can leave the baby with somebody yeah. or she feeds, she had that beautiful sequence where she's feeding oatmeal to the baby and her and her and the David character have this exchange about scientific upbringing and modernity <laughs> <laughs> and that whole gag. And then, yeah, you see it actually develop and it, it comes to a culmination definitely in the sequence sequences with Charles Coburn, because um, there's a threat that the baby could be taken away. And yeah. And, and then the, when she realizes what's happening, she runs away. And then the, all the guys turn around and they're like, where did she go? Yeah. And Charles Gobert's like, oh, no, I got to go save my grandson. <laughs> it's wonderful. And, and it's so interesting because there's all this um, attention to the baby. Like, it's not just a it could be conceived as a nuisance, but everyone really cares about the baby, the orphanage. Yeah, they want to see the baby with its mother. Mm-hmm. David Gibbons' character is like, I'll give you your job back if you keep the baby. You know, Charles Coburn's like, I don't care who the father is, I'm the grandfather. He's just so excited to have an heir, thinking yeah. that it's his son's son when really it's. You know, we don't know who the baby's from. So I think that's really sweet. It is. Yeah, the baby is, in a way, it's it's rare in a classical Hollywood film to have a baby be such like a fully formed character, right? But it's yes. so integral to Polly's life. But, you know, everyone in her orbit, they all do come together to sort of help her in various ways to support the baby. And he's so charming, too. He has, they had um, perfectly timed coups and um to responses to different things or when a character is saying something unusual he's he's just like huh you know they i mean obviously they're playing like baby sounds on top of it but it's not your typical baby sounds that they that they would put in old movies you know where it's like that one standard cry or coup from a baby that they would just play over and over again you can tell that they really wanted the baby to be a active participant in the story and they put a lot of work into finding this baby they think auditioned 50 different ones um and they came across albert coplin jr who just happened to be photogenic a happy baby and didn't fuss too much they didn't want a perfect baby but they wanted a baby who was charming and sweet Mm -hmm. and him and ginger rogers have this own little chemistry themselves which is really sweet in the movie definitely and it it helps you really buy into the story right like you do get to see in those really tender moments i you mentioned the feeding scene i love that it's just like these moments that are not necessarily they drive they don't necessarily drive the plot forward but it really speaks so much to the developing relationship between these characters i think that that 
scene is very central to the story because it taps into a few things like David Niven's character, who's also David, David Merlin. He, like I had mentioned before, he's a Nepo baby and he's got this job, but he's not interested in being responsible. There's several scenes in the early on the film where his dad is very concerned about the fact that he's going out um, and staying up all night with things, (laughs) as he says, um, (laughs) He's partying with his wealthy friends. He has this girl who he's not very serious with, but it's kind of a reliable date. He comes into the office at like one o'clock and everyone's saying good morning when it's really good afternoon. He's not a responsible guy. But when he's presented with Polly Parrish's situation, he sees an opportunity for himself to use his authority um, in work and to actually do something that is not connected to his father at all and to take on this case. And he becomes invested in a career way, but also in an emotional way. And then the emotional part develops. Mm -hmm. And you see that in that scene, the feeding scene the most clearly, because you can tell, wow, he's really invested in both Polly and the baby. Um, And he, he brings this scientific book about raising children. And there's this whole thing about modernity. That's a small theme through the movie about, you know, science and, you know, oh, she says, oh, I, I'm not sleeping very well. He's like, oh, pish posh. It's not that difficult. Look, if we just do the scientific method <laughs> and then and then the whole gag is that he's reading a book about um wh- how to raise a baby and two of the pages are stuck together and it's basically telling him that she should put the oatmeal on a piece of gauze and rub it into the baby's navel when really it's two pages stuck together when they're separated it's to relieve gas on a baby's stomach is put <laughs> warm oil on the gauze and that's really sweet because it also shows that Ginger Rogers' character knows what she's doing. Polly knows what she's doing. Yeah. He really wants to know what he's doing. Like, he really wants to be involved. And that all kind of culminates in that scene. And it's just a funny, it's also funny. I'm, I'm like talking about it like it's very serious, but it's like a hilarious sequence. <laughs> it is. And I think that's what's interesting to me about this film because it's, not necessarily like a pure screwball comedy, but it has these screwball-esque moments. And I think that's a great Mm. one. And a lot of screwball comedies, that battle of the sexes antagonism can almost verge on like brutality, but that's not what this is. There are, you know, they do butt heads, but ultimately like David does want what's best for the baby and he does want to, you know, support Polly in any way he can. So there's this um, I don't know if sentimental is the perfect word, but like the oh, sentimentality yeah. to their relationship, which is really, it's beautiful, I think. Their conflicts are resolved very quickly. I just remember that sequence uh, at the end of the New Year's where he's dropping her off at her apartment and he's talking about taking her on a drive to the country mm-hmm. and she brings up the baby. Oh, it might be too cold for the baby. And he's suddenly like, oh, this is too much. This is like... She's a woman with a child. I'm taking on too much responsibility. But then, but she says, oh, you can just see us in the park tomorrow if you're available. Mm-hmm. And he's there. He's, yeah. He remembers the park, the time. He's there immediately. He's taking a vested interest in the child. So that slight conflict, you're like, oh, he's going to back out. It immediately resolves itself. And like you said, it's sentimental. Like, 
the conflicts aren't very serious. And even when it gets to the main conflict at the end, it gets resolved pretty quickly. I know several actors were originally considered for the David Merlin role. And I think Cary Grant and Douglas Fairbanks Jr., if I'm not mistaken, um, and ultimately went to David Niven. Can you talk a little bit about Niven's star persona and why he was the ideal person to play David Merlin? I mean, you see it more in his later roles, but this mm-hmm. kind of comedy suits him very well. He's yeah. He's got that sort of debonair, charming, but also ne'er-do-well persona that works so well in his movies. And mm-hmm. here it's interesting because you get a much younger David Niven. So he's still got, like, he, he you can see he's, he's already come armed with his charm and his debonair qualities, but mm-hmm. he's also very youthful. So this almost stands out a bit in his early works because he was doing also some, some more serious roles. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of an early taste of his like later comedies and his more like maybe lighthearted roles um, later on in his career. But he's just he's perfect for this because he had that persona where you can believe he was this wealthy guy who just doesn't really take too many things seriously, but also feels a lot like he's got this emotional core um, that he hides behind this sort of goofiness. And he and Ginger Rogers just play very well off of each other. I'm not very good about describing the charm of actors, but I feel like Ginger Rogers and David Niven sell themselves in this movie. <laughs> they do. It's it's a great example of star chemistry. And I think with mm-hmm. David Niven, he's his character's a cad, but like he's always on the right side of likability. Like another actor yes. could push it too far, but he's infinitely charming and he does work so well with Ginger Rogers. It's very different performance styles, but they blend. Mm-hmm. I think that contrast helps. Yeah, and there, I think it's interesting, the New Year's sequence where he, there's this whole joke about the fact that he's getting ready for New Year's. It's after eight o'clock. He doesn't have his date. His regular date is not available. So he sees the Donald Duck toy in the background and it immediately reminds him of Polly Parrish and Donald Duck is like a motif and throughout the whole movie from <laughs> beginning to end and then he goes to her and he's like hey do you want to go out with me and she realizes oh I'm your last option there's it's <laughs> after eight o'clock and he kind of feels bad because he thought of her too late so he invests in this whole makeover he has these workers at the department store get her stockings and this beautiful metallic dress minko with orchids i mean she is like dressed to the nines and this is also a way of him protecting her in a space that's not for her He's at like, and there's two very interesting sequences with dancing in which they are in their, their each other's worlds. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going on a tangent now, but I love talking <laughs> about this, where in the beginning, there's a dance competition at the Pink Slipper, and Polly had just dropped the baby off at David's home, and he follows her there. And it's clear he's out of his element. This is for like the lower class, the working class, having fun at the pink slipper. And the the the, the name of the place is derided a few times in conversation. Mm-hmm. And then later in the New Year sequence, she's entering his space. And that's a fancy New York City nightclub on New Year's Eve. They're having multiple courses. Everyone's dressed to the nines. She's made over and she's baking Swedish 
so she doesn't actually have to have conversations and reveal herself as someone who doesn't necessarily belong in that space Mm -hmm. and he shields her with the makeover and the fake Swedish which is total nonsense Swedish that they speak and for some reason that was a thing in the era because a couple years later the Hutsut song came out and that's all too yeah it was a thing but I think that's really interesting that he has that kind of cad element but then he feels responsible too like Mm -hmm. let me protect her let me give her this makeover and protect her from my friend who could just they're all wolves about to attack her yeah and I think you see that like in the new year sequence they keep cutting two shots of her plate and it's like she can't have time to eat the food because she's always busy dancing and it's like you you can see that he's anxious about that because he wants to protect her so much and he you know plays along with that that fake Swedish it's it's really and they leave early so she can get a hot dog because (laughs) in in Times Square because she had missed the opportunity for all of her food or her, you know, her soup was taken away, her little like Cornish hen and her ice cream melted. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all and she's starving and he takes that upon her. And then there's like my one of my favorite jokes in the movie is when his his um you know usual gal around town is like, oh, I'd soon rather go stag. And Ginger Rogers suddenly talks in English and says, You could chew with those shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> such a comeback and I don't know if it's improvised but David Niven loses it in that sequence he's like falling over himself laughing yeah <laughs> you could see he's like I'm genuinely amused by that yeah. joke right yeah it's so good it's like the perfect like kiss at the end of that sequence yes yes and it also speaks to Ginger's like kind of quickness in this movie she's very yeah. quick with a uh, haha or a like a really good reaction or yeah. something like that which is just killer it's like a killer comeback yeah she's good with like deadpan sort of zingers almost it's, yes I love that about her I love their chemistry too you've mentioned Charles Coburn but the supporting players are so integral to comedy oh, yes and you know Charles Coburn is such a heavy hitter <laughs> in that. can you talk a little bit about what he brings to the film and his re- dynamic with uh, Polly and David? I think he's really interesting. He's sort of this pressure on the David character to be responsible, to, Mm -hmm. you know, grow up, to have a family, to settle down, to take his career seriously. So he's kind of like hovering over David's shoulder with this pressure. But where he really comes in is when um, the Freddie character played by Frank Albertson writes this hilarious note and delivers it to Charles Coburn, who is basically his his boss at this department store, and is like, oh yeah, your son is this father, and how do you like that, you stuffed shirt? Like, it's, <laughs> if you read the note, it's got a ton of typos, it's poorly written, but it's absolutely wrote it almost, hilarious. Right? Yeah. And then this is where Charles Coburn's character comes alive, because he realizes, wow, I have a grandson, and... There's that fantastic sequence where David's like walking down to the park where he's going to meet up with Polly and Charles Coburn is not so slyly following them in his car (laughs) and he's just like hiding behind his hand pretending like to be seen but it's so obvious like this all everything about his character is very obvious yeah he's very obviously interested in having a grandchild and does not care who the real father is he says i'm the grandfather i don't care 
yeah. he seizes an opportunity to continue the bloodline and to give his son this this opportunity to grow up and to to move forward with his life and he's one that cannot be convinced of anything through that <laughs> those later sequences yeah like there's this one hilarious scene where david brings Freddy, oh, Freddy's the father of the child. And then Polly brings, like, the landlady's son. Oh, this is the father of the child. And that sequence is just hilarious. It's like hilarious. three different fathers. It's like a Mamma Mia sort of, or like three men and a baby. It's like, pick And one. they're all trying to convince him. And he doesn't care what the truth is. Like, yeah. he really, he just sees this opportunity. He latches onto it and just keeps going. And it becomes a threat to Polly. But then David swoops in and saves her, essentially, because he's like, I will, I want to marry you. Like, I want to be with you. I want this family. And he comes to this realization. But Charles Coburn is absolutely the stubborn, curmudgeonly <laughs> old man who has this big heart because he is absolutely in love with this child. Like, he's like, thank you for that. Thank you for calling from John. <laughs> <laughs> he was so touched. <laughs> I love the scene when he and um, David are sitting at the table and the, I guess their butler keeps coming in and out. And yeah, he's like throwing the spoon and they hold when the butler's in there, it's like silent. They hold those, those moments. And it's like, they're building that comedic tension. And you just know inside this character's festering, his blood's boiling. Cause he just wants to like shake his son and say, you know, step up. That's my grandson. It's so good. And E.E. E. Clive is so good at the confused but well-meaning butler. Because yeah. there's the sequence where they're going with the baby. And he's like, oh, it's a baby, you know, sir. Like, <laughs> he has these like sweet little moments. And yeah. then that sequence, he comes in, he's completely confused why the spoons are disappearing. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> he keeps, like, and they're glancing. trying to keep their yeah. home. Yeah. <laughs> That's also like this social element too. They're trying to keep their conversation secret from the staff because yeah. it has this element of potential scandal like this yeah. baby had out of wetlock by this wealthy socialite family. So yeah. I think that's an interesting kind of subtle, subtle message there. It is. And I'm, you mentioned um, the PCA earlier in our conversation. And I'm honestly, it's a little bit shocking that they actually settled on the title Bachelor Mother because it is so yeah. evocative. And how do you think the film balances those suggestive comedy elements with the reality of like the code era morality? And class is such a big factor in that too, I think. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like this film has very little to no sexuality. If you think about it, it's all the romance the courtship yeah. but there besides a storyline that polly creates about an ex-husband who beat her with a coffee pot there's really no dark elements and there's no real sexual elements other than the suggestion that there is a father and we don't know who it is yeah. And where it culminates is in that scene with Charles Coburn and the three potential fathers. You're like, whoa, she could have slept with any of these guys. Yeah. So that is that is a little spicy. But otherwise, it's toned down a lot. Mm -hmm. It's toned down a lot because I think what drives it is that that storyline that she's not really the mother. So it's OK. Yeah. It's OK. Pe they think this, but yeah. it's not true. Uh, I remember when I was reading about the PCA's reaction to this, 
to the story. I think Joseph Breen said, it's okay as long as they play everything straight. It's like there's yeah. there's inference and there's innuendo, but we're in, I guess, because we're in on the joke, we know what's going on. They can sort of get away with it. I think, I think that that's, that's really the key. There was another name for the movie that they were suggesting and it was, oh, I, I'm looking at it right now. Nobody's Wife. That seems a little spicier to That's me. worse, yeah. <laughs> Bachelor mother. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised they didn't allow that. And it's interesting that they didn't go with little mother because I felt like that yeah. could have been a safe, um, but it also wouldn't have been attractive, I think, that maybe didn't call audiences out to a movie. It might've worked in German, but maybe not so much. Yeah. I think um, Bachelor maybe- mother seems a little almost more alluring like oh she's a woman in the city and she's a mother and she's a bachelorette you know (laughs) definitely I think little mother to me at least it has this sort of like patronizing air about it whereas bachelor mother it's it speaks to like the the duality of her character a lot more explicitly yeah and I I think it's interesting too that bachelor mother just seems more sophisticated um, but if you were to make this movie now, I mean, the remake was called Bundle of Joy, which which I think is is OK. It's an OK title. Um, but and I'm glad that they went with another title. So it kind of Bachelor Mother kind of stands on its own, even though it's the same story. But if you were to make that movie today, you would it would be released in Christmas time mm-hmm. and some sort of holiday element would be in the title. Yeah. You know, it would be like. Christmas mothers I don't know yeah I'm not good with titles but it would have Christmas somewhere in there because we love our Christmas movies we do. <laughs> um, so it would be positioned differently the Christmas elements would be played up a lot people would be with Christmas trees like there would be more decorations there were the the whole story takes place um in the original in the 1939 bachelor mother over two weeks you get Right before Christmas, through Christmas, through New Year's, and then a little after, so mm-hmm. about two weeks. But a remake today would focus completely on the Christmas element yeah. and maybe end on New Year's, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's interesting, like how it was positioned depending on the time period, who's in the movie, and what would appeal to audiences. But I think it's wild that they released Bachelor Mother in the middle of July. <laughs> I know, that's pretty bold. I was going to ask you about the remake. I watched it for the first time in preparation for this. I'm not I'm a... sorry. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm not an Eddie Fisher fan necessarily. I I think I'll leave it at he's no David Niven. <laughs> no. <laughs> but no. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the remake and how they sort of modernize the story for like a 1950s sensibility? It's awful. <laughs> It's absolutely awful. Even the intro when Eddie Fisher is singing, it's something really stupid and they put the title card over Over? him. Because around that era in the 50s and 60s, they would do sometimes the cartoons, you know, or the the, like designs, like maybe the Saul Bass designs with some musical elements. And they would absolutely take advantage of somebody like an Eddie Fisher, who was a big music star and have like an original theme song. But they chose to have him singing in a depart in the department store with the letters going over him and you kind of trying to go around the letters <laughs> to see what's happening it's awful and yeah. that should be your first indication that this movie is not going to be good yeah. even though Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher were married at the time they have like no chemistry in the movie no. and I know no. 
they were having some issues. She was pregnant with Carrie Fisher. I think that's the only redeeming factor of the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, is it Adolf Manju? He's just not like the equivalent to Charles Coburn. No. I'm not an Adolf Manju fan, to be honest with you. I think the music num- musical numbers, they're catchy, they're yeah. fine, but it's definitely, as you said, the chemistry is just not there and it no. lacks the charm and the, I don't know, the sweetness of the original. I don't know, it just feels yeah. really flat to me. Yeah, and yeah, I, I agree. I do love that they went with a musical route and I had read that it, George Jessel and Betty Hutton were originally planned to make a musical a mm. few years before, but it didn't happen. So it eventually happened with Eddie Fisher and um, Debbie Reynolds. But I think I like that they went a musical route with a different title, but I think bundle of joy. And I I pair it also with the opposite sex, the remake yeah. of the women, which was also, <laughs> in my opinion, very awful. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Attempts to recycle these wonderful stories, add add color, take advantage of the big stars of the era, mm-hmm. but they just kind of fall flat. Yeah, they're missing the they miss like a spark to them. Although I mean, the women yeah. is one of my favorite movies, so yeah, the opposite sex Same. and the modern remake of the women i just i I hate them so much the the opposite i know i saw the modern one in the theater i even put jungle red nail polish on i was i was not hopeful but yeah it did not have any of the same like wonderful charm and cattiness of the original and i just feel like if you're going to do a remake of something like that if you go a different route i think it's i think it's interesting that they did name but name a bundle of joy and name um and went a musical route to try something completely different I'm, i appreciate that that they did that because if they had kind of stuck to the original concepts yeah um in terms of this the um not doing a musical and calling it the same name it might have tarnished the reputation of the 1939 version i agree yeah you wanted to sort of retain its Uh, shine and definitely I think separating them in that way can help with the original final question before we wrap up what makes Bachelor Mother such an enduring film to you so there's a lot of elements I think the fact that it's a Christmas New Year's movie is really great because it encourages classic film fans to watch it every year around Christmas time. And it doesn't hurt that Turner Classic Movies had championed this movie throughout the past couple of decades and shows it every single year. And sometimes we'll show it even after New Year's in January and February. So it's available, it's regularly available to um, viewers of the channel. And it's become a Christmas New Year's classic, something to watch every year. I think that helps with the legacy of it. And also, so many people love Ginger Rogers and David Niven and Charles Coburn and even Frank Albertson. I adore him. I think he's so charming. And anyone who's a fan of It's a Wonderful Life will recognize him in this movie. So there's tie-ins to other, like, holiday movies. And I think the fact that this is rewatchable, not only for Christmas, but it's there's no high stakes Mm-hmm. There's very light conflict between the characters. It's just a sweet romantic comedy, holiday comedy, workplace comedy, appeals to different tastes. Yeah. Um, and like you said, it has some of those screwball elements as well. So anyone who likes screwball comedies will like something like this. And I think it just, I think it's just a movie that 
you don't have to take seriously. You can just enjoy and you can watch over and over again because it has so many themes in it that you can appreciate on multiple viewings, whether it's the differences between the social spheres of the characters, the workplace dynamics. There's this whole storyline about upward mobility in the corporate world, especially with Frank Albertson's character. So you have that. And then you have it being a little time capsule of sort of like the end of the Great Depression, because you see a lot of these characters really struggling with money. They're penny pinching as much as they can. So it's got that sort of element to it. Um, It, it tackles like modernity and um, old-fashioned, you know, family structure. And then the most fun about it is really the one one-liners and the the cute reactions between the characters. Those are just so much fun, and it makes it rewatchable. Like you could just watch it over. You could watch it back to back and still, yeah. You could take two. You can have two almost completely different experiences with mm-hmm. rewatching it. Um, a second time after the first time because you'll pay attention to other elements that you might not have paid attention to before. So even though this is a light-hearted comedy, I think it has some richness. And and because it is so viewable that it's not going to be like, oh my God, I'm watching Citizen Kane again. You know, it's (laughs) not serious. It's something you can really rewatch. And that adds like a, it's a comfort view, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. And for me, it is. I I even try not to watch it too often so that it feels fresh because I love it it so much. (laughs) I love that. I mean, if if you're listening and you haven't seen it, I think that is your cue that once you finish Uh, the podcast, you need to put on Bachelor Mother. So Raquel, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show. Now, where can my listeners find you? So uh, my main writing portfolio is at RaquelStetcher.com, which is really easy to remember. I have a blog just about classic movies called OutOfThePastBlog.com. And I also have a YouTube channel um, to go with it. And I'm on almost every single social media, even Blue Sky. And <laughs> There's so <laughs> many now. <laughs> I have different usernames, but the one I'm on the most is Still Twitter at Raquel Stetcher, but you can find me pretty much anywhere online. And I highly encourage you to read my TCM articles because I work on them a lot. So if you see my byline on the TCM website, give it a read. Definitely. Yeah. Give it a click. The for sure. Thank you so much, Raquel. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's episode of The Screwball Story. If you'd like to stay up to date on news and other items, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Until next time, bye bye. <laughs>